Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from uh, Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today we are doing episode 675. It's a Wednesday, June 1st, 2011. And uh, we're going to talk about making beer today. In fact, we're not really going to talk so much about making beer, a little bit about that. Uh, but we're going to talk about putting together all the stuff you need to be a great home brewer. Uh, kind of a fun topic, mixing it up. I believe it's a skill that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think even though we're going to really focus on extract brewing, which is kind of the easiest thing to do, it'll set you in the right direction to be able to do full mash brewing, which is kind of what the breweries do, so to speak, so that you can you know, be as sustainable as you choose to be with this hobby. It is a great hobby. Uh, I think that uh, unless you're a person that doesn't drink at all, it's something you might want to look into. And uh, I've had a lot of requests to come back and do this topic. Again, I haven't done it since the low 100s. And again, today we're at 675. So this should be a great show today. And uh, my hope is by the end of the day that you'll understand the brewing process. You'll understand the equipment. You'll understand some basic things about beer. And then tomorrow or maybe next week, I want to do a show for you on more specific like recipes and techniques and things like that. And that those two together will give you the confidence to go out and start doing this if it's something that you would like to do. Before we get into the main topic, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. So let's start out with our sponsor, sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. I love Knife Kits because I don't know how to build knives from raw materials. I just don't know how to do it. I could probably figure it out, but I don't have the equipment. And, uh, you know, with all the other things I'm doing, it's not something that I would generally add to my skill set tomorrow morning. But even a novice like me with some basic hand tools can get kind of a pre, you know, prefabricated kit and I can do some customization and final fit and finish and stuff like that. But if you're a master bladesmith that needs raw materials, you can go there too. So Knife Kits is for everybody from the aspiring knife builder to the master bladesmith. And you can get really cool stuff there like, oh, I don't know, how about Mammoth Tusk? How do you like a Mammoth Tusk knife? I didn't know that was possible until I heard of Knife Kits. So check out KnifeKits.com today. Remember, if you're in the member support brigade, they also do a discount for all members of the support brigade. Next up today, uh, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my source for everything, and I mean everything, herbal. If I need a whole herb and I want to make sure it's wildcrafted or, or organically grown and I can't get my hands on it locally, I'm going to westernbotanicals.com and I know they're going to have it. If it's legal, they've got it, man. That's that's about the only limitation. You're not going to find illegal herbs at Western Botanicals. But if it's legal, you'll be able to get your hands on it at Western Botanicals and you'll be able to use it for your own health and well-being. And if you need some information and uh, some knowledge uh, Western Botanicals is the place you want to make a phone call to uh, because they will help you out. Remember, if you are part of the Member Support Brigade, you get their preferred membership for free. Folks, that costs 50 bucks, 50 bucks a year to be a preferred member there, and that gets you 25% off everything that they sell. That means that their one benefit on the MSB pays for the entire MSB. So check out Western Botanicals, and remember, if you want to buy from them, it just makes sense to join the Member Support Brigade and get the preferred membership 
absolutely at no additional cost and save 25% on everything you buy. Next up, I want to remind you guys, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that helps me do a better job of reaching out into a grander community and doing things like getting supporting vendors and getting interviews and stuff like that. It also lets me communicate with you. I love communicating with folks, especially on Facebook, uh, just posting little things once in a while and the feedback that comes in and what people are doing with their lives uh, on the fan page is really great. It's a, it's a great way for me to take the show to a conversational tone because I really care about everybody in this audience. I know a lot of businesses say that. I do everything I can to try to just demonstrate that to you guys, and uh, Facebook is one of the ways that I'm able to do that. I know some of you guys think it's a time waster, but if you focus just on the things you actually care about, Facebook's kind of cool. All right, next up today, uh, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. You get lots of great discounts. You get lots of exclusive content. Remember, if you are prior service or active duty military, email me first, jack at com. I have a special deal that's undisclosed uh, to the general public only for military members. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Um, Again, when I decided to do this show, I wanted to do something different than I did last time, and I really wanted to maybe give you a comprehensive overview of home brewing. I, I'm almost afraid that I put together too comprehensive of a you know equipment list for you because it might make this thing seem more complicated than it is. In spite of everything I'm going to tell you, I'm going to I'll tell you this: if I had a pot, some malt extract, some hops a spoon, some bottles, and some tubing, and some yeast, I could pull off making some decent beer. Okay, so I want you to understand right from the beginning, before we get started into this, that it is not complicated. And all this stuff that I'm going to talk to you about is designed to actually make it easier for you. And if you understand all the equipment and you, you kind of kind of ease yourself into it, you'll be able to say, well, maybe I can't go out and buy everything I'd like to have initially, but I know this stuff is critical, uh, the stuff that I'm going to call must-haves. And not all of them, even the must-haves are must-haves, or some of the must-haves are probably already in your home uh, with, with you know a few things anyway. Uh, but there's certain things that you got to have if you're going to do it right, and uh, we'll go over those. Before I do that, though, I want to kind of talk to you about When you make beer, there's three ways that home brewers make beer. And I want you to basically understand what they are. The first one is called a full mash or mash brewing. And it's what the breweries do. And that's when we're going to start out with grain. And we're going to have to put it through a mashing process, which creates a conversion process with converting starch to sugars. And we do that primarily, and I'm not going to go deep into this, but primarily by reaching a temperature and holding a temperature for a long period of time. Some of the drawbacks are, if I'm making five gallons of beer, I pretty much have to mash five gallons to get a five-gallon batch of beer. That means if I want to do a really big batch, I want to do a 10-gallon batch, I've got to do 10, 15, however much I want to do. If I want to do a large scale, maybe I'm kegging or something like that, I've got to do that. The, the beauty of mash brewing is you get the greatest amount of control over the end product. And you get all these little chances to do these things with different nuances and stuff. But since the process takes longer, there's more potential for something to go wrong. It takes longer, it requires more energy, and you know it, it, it requires very large brewing apparatus, which I think is a good idea anyway as far as the size of your kettle, which we'll get to in a bit. But that's kind of the downside. The upside, again, you get the additional control. It's And if you do it right, once you own your own equipment and you've made that initial investment, it's the lowest cost method of producing uh, beer because you're doing the mashing process yourself. You're, you're doing the conversion process yourself rather than relying on something called malt extract. 
There is a bridge between the two worlds that a lot of people do, and it's called partial mash. And that's where you do the mashing process, and maybe you're going to do enough to equivalently make two gallons of your beer, and then you're bulking it up to a five-gallon batch with extract. So that way you're kind of learning the process, and there's a, you know, I, I, a lot of brewers feel that there's a more complex nature when you're doing the mashing process yourself to beer. You get better overall results. This kind of bridges you toward that. And then there's what we're going to talk about uh, most on the show, which is extract brewing. Because I believe if you're not an extract brew, all you have to do is add the skill of mashing, and you can go to mashing. So, and mashing is really not that complicated. Again, it's putting the grain into water and holding it at a specific temperature for a specific period of time. That's that's really all there is to it. But then we have to go do everything else that we would do with an extract brew. So that's why I think, especially on on, on audio, where it's more difficult for me to explain exactly what something looks like it's better that we just kind of omit that. So that, that's the beginning uh, of the thing. Now I want to give you some basic beer knowledge. Some of the stuff that maybe uh, you think that annoying guy in the bar that wants to tell you about the difference between lager and ale would say uh, that might seem like minutial trivia. But if you're going to make beer, it's important to know these things because it'll help you make better beer and it'll help you improvise your own recipes long term if you understand these things. First of all, I want to talk about hops. We hear hops talked about in just about every beer commercial out there. Uh, including beer that has almost no hop character whatsoever, like, you know, Bud Light or Budweiser, uh, to, you know, stuff that's really heavily hopped and it's got lots of hop flavor and bitterness and aroma in it, like a Samuel Adams. And everybody talks about the hops. But what is a hop? A hop is basically a vine that grows a flower. And that flower is the hop part that goes into your beer. And when we buy hops for our beer, we can get them, you know, we can grow them ourselves, but if we're going to purchase them, we can either get them as whole flower cones, we can get them in pellet form. We can get them into large pellet form. There's a couple different ways they come, but in the end, it's still a green flower. And that flower has in it a variety of, of uh, scents and flavors, which if you want those to work, and we'll talk about the basic brewing process at the end, it goes toward the end of the brewing process, or they will be the, the volatile oils that provide the flavor and the smells will be boiled off. The big reason they put uh, hops into beer is to balance it. Malt is sweet. If you ever remember a malted milkshake, right? Uh, Malt is sweet. We convert the starch and grain to sugar, and then we ferment the sugar to make beer. That's the basic process. So even with that, there's some residual sugars there. And overly sweet beers are not very pleasing to the palate. So one thing that the, the hops do is they provide an acid, it's called an alpha acid that's a bittering agent. When you purchase hops, you'll see their red, you know, numbers on them like 5.5%. That's the percentage of the hops that are made up of these bittering acids. So when you're following a recipe, if it calls for a certain amount of hops, it, it won't just say the variety like Cascade or Fugles or Northern Brewer. It'll also say the acid. So if it's close, you can just basically use the same amount. If you happen to get some hops that are higher in acid content, you might want to drop it down a little bit or bring it up if they're lower. So that acid, that alpha acid, is where the bitter side. So we take bitter and sweet, and we put them into beer, and in spite of the Keystone commercials about bitter beer face, right? what we're actually looking to do is create a balance. 
Now, the other thing is that hops have a very preservative uh, aspect to them. So when you, you're making beer, you have alcohol as a preservative, you have a hops as a preservative, you end up with a very stable beverage, something that can go without refrigeration for long periods of time. And as long as it's relatively taken decent care of, it stays safe to drink, it doesn't go bad, it doesn't go off flavor, what have you. With one exception. You know how those green bottles of beer that you get from overseas, sometimes you open them up and they have that skunk smell to them, uh, and you think that's like an import thing? It's not an import thing. It's because green does not repel UV light well. You might as well be in a clear bottle. Green has almost no effect on UV light. If you take a beer with that hasn't been processed in any way to stabilize the hops, which generally you don't want to do, and you put it in sunlight for as little as 30 minutes, it will rancidize those hops, and that's what that smell really is. It has nothing to do with the fact that Heineken is from Holland. A good fresh Heineken has none of that flavor, none of that character, none of that smell. It's when your shopkeeper puts the six-pack up on a shelf and leaves the light hit it for days and days and days before you buy it. All right, so that's where hops kind of go awry. The other thing about hops with that preservative character is why certain beers have their styles. If you look like uh, IPA is going to be very popular in craft brewing society, but I don't think many people understand what IPA is all about. It stands for India Pale Ale. And the British would ship beer to their troops in India, brewed in England. But there was no Suez Canal, so the ship had to go all the way around Africa and all the way up to India, and it would spend many days at sea, and it would go through many temperature fluctuations. When you have a high alpha acid content, a lot of bittering in your 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 uh, your ale or your or, or lager for that matter, it creates a stabilizing effect, and that that ale was able to make it from England to India relatively stable due to that high alpha acid content and to high additional uh, volatile oils added as aroma and uh, and and flavor hops to IPA. That's how the style got that way. So just a little bit of beer history to. Uh, to kind of make you realize there's more to it than we just put this stuff together because the beer comes out. The hops actually do absolutely nothing as far as the alcohol content of the beer at all. It's all about flavor, aroma, and balance. Um, a couple, you know, things that I want to cover here in the beginning too. First of all, you know, you hear all these jokes about, well, homebrew could make you go blind or make you sick or whatever. It's impossible. It's impossible. The whole stuff about people going blind uh, back during Prohibition, that was about distilling. And certain things that are done incorrectly in the distilling process uh, can produce the wrong type of alcohol. Fermentation is not going to do that. Uh, it's not going to make you sick, other than if you drink too much of anything, it can make you sick. Um, it, it's not going to go bad in a way that's going to be dangerous for you to consume. The alcohol content in beer is high enough to basically kill anything in there that could harm you. So it's not going to harm you. If you don't practice good sanitation, which we'll talk a lot about in a coming bit, um, it can go bad. It can taste horrible. It almost gets a, if you ever had a batch go bad, sometimes it gets almost a smoky taste to it, not in a good way, or a soapy taste to it, not in a good way. And there's a lot of different things that can cause that, but it won't hurt you, okay, other than too much alcohol is bad for anybody. Uh, next one, it's totally legal. There's nothing underground or bootleg about making beer uh, with a few minor restrictions. Anybody can make a bunch of beer. And to go over the amount of beer you ha you're allowed to make, you have to make an awful lot of beer. It's What's not legal is to do home brewing for resell to anybody else as a craft brewery without certain licensing and restrictions. But to make beer for your own consumption and share it with your buddies is completely legal. Uh, it doesn't take forever. People think, well, how long does it take to make beer? I mean, it takes months. and uh, You can make a basic British brown mild, and I mean from the day you boil it 
to having it bottled and finished off, you can do that in 14 days or less. Probably not what you want to do to get exactly the result you're looking for, uh, but 14 days is plenty of time for a moderately uh, moderate alcohol content ale to ferment at ale fermentation temperatures, which we'll talk about later as well. So I want you to understand that you could basically run a batch every two weeks and have a batch always on hand. Five-gallon batch of beer is going to produce you about two and a half cases of beer, so you're looking at 60 beers. So if you just wanted to pick a you know kind of a favorite uh, thing, every two to three weeks you could be turning out a batch, just doing one batch at a time. Uh, recycling your bottles, etc. So it doesn't take forever. Some take longer periods of time to mature fully uh, than other beers, but in general, you're looking at between um, seven and and 28 days for the average varieties of beer that most home brewers make. If you're going to lager, which again we'll talk about later, we we extend that uh, because it's part of the process of lagering. I'm not big into make. I like to drink lagers, but I'm big into making ales faster, easier, and more character, and that's why I like them. Um, next up, the goal is not more alcohol. Every time I talk to somebody, especially people that have never home brewed, they're like, I'll bet it gets you drunk. Well, you know, so does Budweiser if you drink enough of it. Uh, I liken it to bread. Now, if, if you start making your own bread, uh, the average loaf of bread is maybe, you know, a foot to a foot and a half long. Well, you could make six-foot loaves of bread if you want to. But it's not very practical, and it doesn't really do anything special to have a really big loaf of bread except you need a big oven to cook it in. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. So with beer, you can certainly do things to boost alcohol content. We can do simple things like take a basic uh, uh, English ale or an American ale and dump in two pounds of uh, corn sugar in it. It'll lighten it, and it'll blow the alcohol level up quite a bit. Doesn't mean we should. It's going to ruin the character and the style of the beer. Um, if we want to do it with malt, which is a better way, we increase the amount of malt, uh, for the batch size, we're going to go to a different style. So it's fine that some beers are sitting at three and a half, three point two percent alcohol. I, I know people get you know bad people that are from Texas hate the Oklahoma beer because it's that way, but that's that's the different thing altogether. That's watered down Budweiser for for Christ's sakes, and I call Budweiser butt wiper. Um, it, it's it's not what I'm looking for in a beer. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with having a beer that's that level. It's a great beer if you want to drink a beer or two while you're cutting the grass. Um, you're not going to get you know overly intoxicated from it, uh, and there's a certain refreshing nature. All beers have their places. There's a place for a light lager, you know, like like a Budweiser, but not that swill, right? Uh, there's a place for a really dark, uh, heavy, complex barley wine ale, but it's not when you're sweating and over the barbecue. You match beer to style to the situation, and you'll find that you know colder climates, traditional types of beers that come from there um, are, are heavier, richer, uh, darker beers, and from warm climates, they're more refreshing, lighter beers. So, uh, it's a big thing out of this though is it's not about trying to make beer that's got nine percent alcohol in it, unless it's a style of beer that's supposed to have that. It's making the beer right for the style. It's about building something that is quality. Not something stupid, okay? Um, next one is, it does save money. It will save you money to make your own beer. There's no doubt about that. But it won't save you money against buying swill. If you're going to buy Keystone or Natural Light in the 16-pound cans uh, on sale, when it's on special and things like that, uh, it's, it's going to be hard to compete with the price of that. But if you look at things like your good quality craft ales that run anywhere between 7 and $10 a six-pack, you can blow that number out of the water. But it's not going to save you much money over Pabst. 
Okay, or or you know Bud Light when it's on special in the uh, the 30 can pack or whatever uh, you know low end. And if you like that beer, I'm not really putting you down. I'm just saying that's a mass produced product, and we're not doing a mass produced product here. So if I were a person that built my own fishing rods, for instance, and I custom built my rods from specific blanks with certain eyes and and fittings and stuff like that, uh, I could say that I could build that rod and save a lot of money over buying a custom built rod. But it's not going to be less than an American Angler or a Zepco down at Walmart. Just want to make that clear. So let's get into the basic homebrewers kit. What do what do we gotta have if we're gonna if we're gonna brew? And one of the first things we have to have is our brew kettle. And our brew kettle can be anything, but stainless steel is generally the way to go. Some people use aluminum, but it'll patina and it'll to me it'll impart certain off flavors in the beer and most home brewers won't touch aluminum as a brew kettle uh, and it also has some heat distribution issues and things like that I want a good heavy gauge stainless steel kettle now you can get by with something that'll let you uh, boil about two gallons total uh, to do extract brewing and add it to water in your fermenter but if you can get up to where you're getting most of if not all of your five gallon batches in a kettle you're much better off uh, that makes things a little complex doing things on a stovetop. So I, I'm going to say something I had planned for at the end of this segment right up front. There's a guy named Charlie Papazian, and he's got two books in particular, the, the, the Complete Joy of Home Brewing and the New Complete Joy of Home Brewing. I think if you buy those two books and you use those as your guidelines with the information I give you here, you'll never have a problem. And I think that you're, if, if you're going to home brew, at least the first book, The Complete Joy of Home Brewing, add that to your library. And read the first section of it where it goes through all these processes and things like that. Even though that book was put out, I think, in the 80s, it's just valuable today as it ever was. And so with everything else I'm saying, I want you to temper that with you're going to acquire additional knowledge to do this stuff. Uh, with kettles, I like, and, and, and what I, you know, right now I'm about to make some homebrew shops day because I'm about to resupply myself with 90% of the gear that I got rid of when I quit doing this for a while because now I'm ready to start doing it again now that we're up here in Arkansas. I like a heavy gauge um, stainless steel with a capacity of about 10 gallons, even though I do generally five gallon batches. It gives me plenty of headroom, plenty of room to work with, and I like to do it outside. So I like to use a propane cooker, but that will save that for later. I like kettles that have a built-in thermometer, and I like kettles that have a drain spout so I can get the uh, the wort. Wort, by the way, is when you've, you've boiled everything up and you've made your, your, your pre-beer soup, let's call it. That's wort. So I can get the wort out without using siphoning, and I can use gravity to do that. And I think that is the best way to go long-term. But for years, and I mean years, I went down to like a local uh, home homeware uh, supply place. I got the biggest stainless steel kettle I could, and I'd say it probably held about three gallons of of, of uh, you know liquid. And I would do my batches at about two and a half gallons, and I would put two and a half gallons of water in my sanitized fermenter, and I would dump that in there, and I made some amazing beers. So you don't have to have that massive kettle. You can get by, but you need a good size stainless steel pot. Fermenters, uh, you got to have a place to put the wort. Wort again before the yeast is added uh, and before it starts working. We call it wort. We got to have a place to put that. And we got to have a place to leave it. There's two primary things that home brewers use: glass, they call them carboys, and plastic pails. I prefer glass. To me, it's easier to know that I've got everything cleaned and sanitized. Again, we'll talk about sanitization in a minute. The problem with plastic is it's much easier to get a scratch, uh, and it's much easier for something to be uh, harbored in that scratch. Again, it's not going to make you sick. 
It's not going to kill you, but it can ruin a batch of perfectly good beer. Or it can give you just a slight amount of off character. And the problem with this is sometimes things that get in there foreign and wild yeast and stuff give a beer a character that's actually enjoyable. And sometimes they turn it into absolute dog piss is the only way I can describe it. It's horrible. And you don't know what you're going to get. So you want to kind of avoid that altogether, period. All right. So plastic, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I've made a lot of great beers that, that were fermented in plastic, but all things being equal, I prefer glass. Glass is heavy, and it can break. All right, so those are those are the downsides of the glass. Uh, but it's also clear, so it opens up the fermenter to sunlight and to UV light. So when I ferment in glass, I put uh, a sheet around the glass to protect, the, and I try to ferment it in a dark area. So pails, some light can get in, but a lot less. Carboys, again, the glass fermenters, if you think about when you look at a water cooler with a big five-gallon uh, jug on top of it, they look just like that, only they're made out of pure glass. Only place I know to get them is from homebrew suppliers. They also make a little, this is not an essential, but it's nice to have, um, and I don't think I included it in my nice-to-have list, so I'll include it now. These little um, handles that are designed that have a wingnut screw, they grow around the neck of a carboy, and they make it easier to pick it up. And I definitely recommend those. You also need what's called an airlock. There's a lot of different kinds. They all work just fine. Uh, they have a little rubber stopper that goes into your bottle or to the little hole in the top of your uh, plastic pail. And they look a lot like your five-gallon pails we store food in. I am there's Usually you can find fermenters in the five-gallon and, and six-and-a-half-gallon size. I like six-and-a-half-gallon fermenters. I like to make my batches up to about six gallons, leaving a half gallon of headroom. And I pretty much end up with about five to five and a half gallons of end product due to some stuff that's lost along the way. And I like the extra headroom, and I like to be able to end up with a pure 60-bottle uh, batch every single time if you're doing 12-ounce bottles. So a little extra thing there. Um, but the airlock is the thing that you fill with water. And what that allows to happen is there's a fermentation going on, The beer is making alcohol because the yeast is converting sugar and using it to live. Yeast are alive. Little living creatures going around in there. Tiny microscopic yeast taking the sugar, converting it to alcohol and CO2 and, and deriving energy from that so they can continue to reproduce and grow until they run out of food, in which case they settle out. They don't die. They just settle out. Don't worry. Yeast is good for you. High, high source of B12. So when that happens, it releases CO2 as a byproduct. So we need a way to let that out and keep bad, nasty stuff from getting in. So the airlock allows the water to create a seal, and then the CO2 bubbles out. So you need an airlock. You need what's called a racking tube. A racking tube is a long tube, either made out of plastic. Uh, some of them are made out of metal. Uh, I guess there could be other things, but I've only ever seen plastic and metal. They usually have a little thing on the bottom that keeps you from picking up sediment. What that's for is, let's say I take all my, my stuff, I've made my, my wort, I put it into my fermenter, and I let it sit there for a week, maybe two, and it's working, it's, it's bubbling, etc. It's a great big foam head at first, and then it kind of settles back down. And now, uh, maybe I do have a five-gallon carboy, and I want to rack it off to that, and basically let it, a very slow secondary fermentation process go, and I want to settle it out, and I want to get it off this big pile of sediment that's now laying on the bottom of my thing. I put my racking tube in there, I use a siphon hose, and I siphon it over to my secondary fermenter, I reinstall an airlock, 
and uh, I, I let that I let that go through a secondary fermentation process, and that gets me a clearer, cleaner end product. It also gets me a better overall total fermentation. I've gotten mo rid of most of the sugars. The only things that are in there that are residual sugars provide some residual sweetness. Are some sugars are simply not fermentable. They won't ferment with yeast. So that will be my, you know that's my goal is to get is 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 full of fermentation as process and as clean a product as process. Uh, I'll need a filling wand. A filling wand is a great little tool. Don't try to do it without one. Uh, it's a little plastic tube. It's got a little lever on the bottom, like a little pressure thing. You hook tubing up to it. You run that from what your vessel that you're bottling from when you're filling your bottles. You stick it in a bottle. You push it on the bottom of the bottle, and guess what? Your beer comes out. Starts filling up the bottle. You fill it right to the top. You pull the wand out. The space that the wand takes up when you pull it out gives you exactly what you need for headroom because you need you don't want your bottles full to the top. You want a little bit of space in there. And your bottling wand generally every bottle I've ever used put the bottling wand in, fill it till it's just about all the way full. Pull the bottle of wand out and I get about an inch to an inch and a half headroom, which is exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, so you need a bottling wand. That's why you need one or a filling wand, as they're called. I'm a big believer that it makes a lot of sense to have a bottling bucket, even if you don't ferment in plastic. A bottling bucket's a great big bucket, uh, like kind of like our food storage buckets with a little spigot on the bottom. Okay, what I'll do if I'm going to bottle and I'm using a bottling bucket, I'll rack the stuff from my secondary fermenter into my bottling bucket. And uh, then I'll hook up a hose to my bottling bucket, run that to my wand, set it higher than where I'm bottling, and I'll use gravity to fill my bottles. Why not just use the siphon action and, and come straight out of your secondary fermenter? As you're moving around, you're more likely to stir up the bottom of your secondary fermenter and the stuff that you let you know kind of settle out to include that in your bottling. It won't hurt anything, but that's kind of one of the purposes of doing it in the first place. It's also likely that as you move things around, you might break the siphon and have to reestablish it. And every time you add steps, you add potential for contamination and getting something into your beer that you don't want there. Um, so I'm a big believer in the bottling bucket. You need bottle caps and bottles and a capper. There's a lot of different types of cappers. The basic swing arm capper, it has two handles. You put the cap on the bottle, you set it down, and it kind of swings out. Uh, they call, again, it's called a swing arm capper. That's the best one I've ever found. I would always recommend you use a style like that. Uh, there's ones that you can hit with a hammer and stupid nonsense like that, and there's some other more complex ones, and some people are going to say that theirs is better or whatever. But I'll tell you what, if you use a good swing arm capper, uh, you're not going to have any time, trouble capping your beer. Um, you're going to need sanitizer, and there's a lot of different choices in sanitizer. Um, a lot of people start off using bleach. You use a small amount of bleach to your water to make a sanitizing solution. Sanitize all your equipment, soak all your equipment, and they have to rinse all your equipment. And the problem is, and I did this in the beginning because I didn't really have a mentor, and there was back when I was first home brewing, I didn't even have internet access. There wasn't much of an internet to speak of yet. I guess Al Gore hadn't invented it yet, and um, You know, you read in a book or you talk, somebody tells you to do it, so you do it. And sometimes it worked out really great. And sometimes I would get this beer with this, like, it would be kind of cloudy and it would have this off taste to it. And it had this, like, this bad smoky character that wasn't good. And a lot of times that wasn't that something bad got into the beer. That was the residual bleach that caused that. And uh, that's why I went to some other sanitizers. There's a product called One Step. It comes with a lot of uh, kits. And a lot of home brewers are kind of down on it because it's not approved by the FDA as a sanitizer. 
Uh, it's more of a cleaner. But I don't really give a damn what the FDA says. I'll tell you that one step works great. It's cheap. I've never had a problem with uh, my sanitation when using one step. So it's a great product and it works really well. And uh, you, when, if you go into the forums and, and, and listen to a lot of people that homebrew a lot, again, you're going to find a lot of people down on it because of that fact. To me, that's kind of silly because what you won't find is a lot of people say, I use One Step or uh, similar products like Be Bright is another one. And e even though I did everything I was supposed to, my beer didn't come out right. You, you don't find that. Um, that said, kind of the two go-to products, one is called... Ida 4, and Ida 4 is an iodine-based sanitizer. Oh, real quick before I move on to uh, um, the other products. All three of these products I'm going to give you, uh, One Step, Ida 4, and Star Sand are what are called no-rinse products, and this is a big advantage. If you use bleach, you have to rinse the hell out of everything. So if you've just prepared 60 bottles by soaking them in some bleach solution water, you have to rinse out each one of those 60 bottles completely and fully, and any residue there is going to cause problems. Okay. Um, these other products you don't have to rinse. So that saves time and it saves water, which is an important resource source for us as preppers and things like that. Uh, Ida 4, again, iodine-based, and again, the, the one step doesn't have to be rinsed either. It's iodine-based, no rinse, you don't have to have it in contact for very uh, long, and it's cheap. The bad side about it, and I don't like it because of this, is it will eventually stain your equipment, especially your plastic uh, buckets, Uh, your bottling buckets and things like your siphon tubing, your siphon wands and things like that. Kind of a brownish iodine-y looking color. It's only cosmetic. It won't hurt anything. But to me, I like my equipment to look clean. And that helps me see if there's something there that's not supposed to be there. Uh, if you think about it this way, it's real easy to see if somebody wearing a white shirt has gotten coffee on their shirt. If they're wearing a light brown shirt, it might hide the stain. When I'm wearing a shirt at the office, I'd rather if I get a little bit of coffee on me and not be seen. I'm not a big fan of white in the office uh, because anything you touch, you know, obviously it, it shows up really badly. Um, but when it comes to my brewing equipment, I like everything bright, white, and clean so I can see when there's a problem. Uh, that's why I really like the last one. It's called Starsan, S-T-A-R-S-A-N, and it's a uh, acid-based sanitizer. Uh, it foams, and people fear the foam. Don't fear the foam. The foam actually is a good nutrient for your yeast, so there's no reason to fear it. Fear it. It's no rinse, it's colorless, it's odorless. A little goes a long way, and you can even reuse it if you test the pH and it stays below three. Uh, cons, it'll make your hand dry, and again, some people are afraid of the, afraid of the foam, which is kind of silly. I found a guy that was talking about all of these, uh, uh, called Billy Brew is his site, and he's got a good article out about these sanitizers along with a YouTube video. Uh, I will post a link to that today if you want to know more about sanitizers. The big thing with sanitizers is it's incredibly important. Your quality of your beer is going to be two things, actually three, technique, ingredients, sanitation. Those are your three big ones. Your ingredients, the quality of those, the quantity of those is going to create your style and your overall quality of the beer, right? Your technique, as you get better over time, you'll make less mistakes, so you'll get a better quality result. Sanitation, you can work with the ingredients, you can work with the techniques, you can be so-so with the techniques, you can be so-so with the ingredients, but if this, and it still produces a decent beer. If you are off with your sanitation, you will ruin your beer and you will ruin it consistently. So it's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. And it's not a health issue. I want to be clear about that. There's plenty of things that a lot of us do in the kitchen that a doctor would go, especially the germaphobe type doctors that they put on the talk shows and all, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. But we, we, we are just fine health-wise. 
This is about the quality of the product. Obviously, you don't want to be putting nasty things in your body. You do want to wipe surfaces down and stuff like that. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if you back off on the sanitation at all, you're going to end up working really hard to produce two and a half cases of beer that you're going to dump down the sink. And even when you do everything right, sometimes something will happen. You'll screw it up, and it'll happen from time to time. Happens once a year, you're angry, but it's not that big a deal. If it happens consistently, it really makes this hobby not worth the time and the effort. Okay. Um, you're also going to need uh, grain or hop bags. And there's really two types of things. One is like a mucilin bag. It's kind of like cheesecloth. And they're cheap. Uh, you, you get them you know, from homebrew stores, homebrew suppliers, things like that, cheese-making shops. And what they're for is you put things like your hops in there when you're putting it in the brew kettle because that way you can remove them without having to strain things out of there. And then there's another thing called specialty grains. With, mash, uh, with malt extract brewing, uh, which is where we're using a pre pre-prepared product that we're just going to stir, dump and stir is when we do uh, mash extract. You dump it in, you stir it up, you boil it, it goes into your fermenter. You don't have to take anything back out. But we might want to use some specialty grains uh, to add additional character. More on that in a future show, but we might create a little bit of darkness or a little bit of depth or a little bit of complexity with, let's say, uh, a pound or a pound and a half of caramel malt cracked put into a bag. When we put our hops in there, again, we've already talked about that we want the acid flavor or we want toward the end, we want the aroma or the, or the flavor. Um, by putting them in bags, we are able to remove that. It doesn't go into our fermenter. So you have these mucilin bags, again, cheap, but you get one or two uses out of them and throw them away, and a lot of times one. Then they make these nylon bags that have a little drawstring on them and all. They cost a little bit more, but if you get a good supply of those, you can use them over and over and over again. Sanitation, not a big concern, because when you're adding these things to your kettle, you're either bringing the water near boiling or to boiling, and that heat's going to kill anything that you have to worry about. So you're, you're safe with those, but definitely some bags. Uh, on the sanitation, a bottle and a carboy brush. I think it makes sense to have those to be able to uh, run a brush in and out of your bottle, a big brush that goes into your carboy to scrub things out. I think they're must-haves. A stirring spoon. A lot of people are big on like a big stainless steel spoon or something like that, again, because it's easy to clean, sanitize, whatever. Charlie Papazian always called it his charismatic wooden spoon. And he had this great big wooden handle spoon, and that's what I use. People say, but that wood can get stuff in it. Yeah, it can, but I'm also using it to stir boiling wort at 212-plus degrees. Ain't nothing living in there when that temperature's up that way. So you can use stainless steel, but it won't have the charisma in Charlie's words, and I'm a big Charlie fan. Um, next, you're going to need a stove. I, I threw that in, but honestly, you need a heat source. And, you're, and the reason I put it in there is because your stove will work. Your stove and your house will work. There's some downsides to it. I'll talk about those in just a minute, but got to have a heat source. Last, and I'll reiterate Charlie Papazian's book, The Complete Joy of Home Brewing and The New Complete Joy of Home Brewing. If you add those uh, between recipes, technique, information, history, you'll have everything you need to be a great home brewer. Completing the kit. These are things that are nice to have. A hydrometer. A hydrometer is a measuring device that, that measures something called the specific gravity of a liquid. And it does that by having something of a specific density and seeing how high or low it floats in that. So we have two parts. We have a tube with markings on it, and we put our, our whatever fluid we're measuring the gravity of in there, and then we put our little hydrometer density measure in there, and we look at how high it floats. And we'll see that you know if we have water, let's just make this very, very simple. If I have water and I add um, malt syrup to the water and dissolve that, it's going to be more dense 
the little thing should float higher. Okay? If I take that malt, malted water now and I ferment it, put yeast in there to convert the sugar or the sugar into alcohol, which has a lower density than water, that density should come down. It should be less dense, and the little thing should float a little lower, and it will. And the way we use a hydrometer with brewing is we know kind of our target-specific gravity, how dense it should be when we start, and how, how, less, how much less dense it should be when we finish. Then we can actually do mathematics and determine what our alcohol content is based on those two numbers. But primarily for the home brewer, so when you're following a recipe, they'll tell you where you should start and where you should finish, so you know you're really finished. You didn't get stuck along the way. Sometimes fermentation will stick. And that just basically means that there's still sugar in there that can ferment, and you go to bottle it, and you add a little bit of additional sugar, uh, and it unsticks, and you get overcarbonation, or you blow tops off bottles. So that's there. Why don't I then call this a must-have? Because for the first two years of my brewing, I didn't own a hydrometer. And I just made sure that my, my beer was well cleared before on my secondary fermenter. And I gave it plenty of time. And all my beer came out great. I followed recipes. I improvised. I added things. I put in things called adjuncts. I did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I never had a problem. So obviously I can't call it a must-have. It is a nice-to-have. They're not very expensive. A floating thermometer. Floating thermometer does a lot for you. Uh, one thing it'll do is when you're when, once you're done and you're going to put your wort into your glass fermenter, obviously you don't want to put 200 degree wort into the glass fermenter because it'll crack it, it'll break it. And if we spill it, it'll burn us and send us to the hospital. So it lets you watch the temperature come down. If you're mash brewing, you need to hold at a certain temperature so you can see where the temperature is. Um, if we're going to chill our wort, we want to know where it comes down to a certain point when we stop chilling it. There's all kinds of great things that the thermometer does. I'll leave it at that. Why is it a must-have then? Well, because you don't have to have it. I mean, you can let your wort chill to a point where you know it, it's, it's safe to put it in there. You can put it into your fermenter. You can wait long enough that you're sure that the yeast are going to survive before you pitch your yeast into your fermenter. If you pitch yeast when the wort's too hot, you'll kill your yeast. It'll die. Right? So it's not a definite must-have. But most people would call it a must-have. But I'm going to be real with you. You don't got to have it. Dairy thermometers are generally what people use for this. Then there's a wort chiller. Wort chillers are really nice to have. All right, Don't need it. Ain't got to have it. Can start making beer tomorrow without it. I went for years. I never owned one. I will own one this time around because they speed up the process of chilling your wort. A basic immersion wort chiller is basically a spiral of copper pipe, and you run a tube on one side of it to your, your faucet, and then you run the other side out to a bucket to reserve the water and dump outside or down your drain. And I don't think you should run your water down the drain. You should water your plants or what have you because it never touches the beer. And it's called, again, an immersion wort chiller. And all you're doing is you're running cold water through the pipes while they're submerged in your, uh, your beer. I like this because I don't actually move the beer during this period of time. It eliminates an additional, uh, you know, potential problem. It is limited in how effective it is. It takes quite a while and quite a bit of water to chill down five gallons of 200 plus degree wort to a temperature where I'm ready to transfer it into my fermentation vessel, but it'll happen a hell of a lot faster that way than letting it cool by itself over time. Poor man's version. With a smaller pot, would you do like a two and a half, three gallon pot? Fill your sink with ice water. Take your pot off of your stove, stick it in the ice water. It works. It helps a lot. It'll get it chilled down enough to get it into that fermenter, 
sanitize for a minute or sanitized airlock, get the airlock on it, uh, let it chill longer until you're ready to pitch your yeast. It works. Did it for years. Kind of makes a mess compared to a wort chiller. Um, there's also uh, another type of wort chiller. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of them, really, but overall they're known as, as counterflow chillers where you have a device where you have your, your hot wort being forced one way through and your chilled water being forced another way through. So some of them look almost like the immersion chiller. So they're the coil, but your beer now is flowing. So your, your beer is being, your, your wort is being taken down to a very small quantity and it goes through this and then back into the uh, containment vessel. Or with some, you can actually, with counterflows, you can go, so you're going straight out of your pot, straight into your fermenter. But as you're doing that, you're getting a counterflow. So you've got a, a cool pipe with a hot pipe on the outside, and that cool is taking away a lot of the heat. Very, very effective, very, very fast. Uh, there's different, a lot of different types uh, of them out there. Um, but, I'm, you know, and I guess, you know, if you look at it this way, you're moving the beer into the, uh, the, the fermenter anyway. Uh, but I have just found less expensive and easy, uh, your immersion chillers are, are great. Because uh, you just stick them in there. What about sanitation? Uh, we take the pot, we, we bring it over to where wherever we're going to do this process, and that that wort is again at over 200 degrees. I do want to basically use sanitizing solution on my chiller, but when I stick it in there, the heat's going to kill anything anyway. So I find it a very safe uh, product from a sanitation standpoint to not have any quality issues. But either one is good. You'll just find that your uh, a counterflow wort chiller is going to run you generally somewhere between uh, $150 and $250, depending on uh, what what you're buying. There's some economy models out there, but generally you get what you pay for. Where a simple immersion wort chiller, um, $65, $75. Or less. Some of them you get for fifty dollars. Uh, I've seen them as low as forty dollars. You could make one yourself with some fittings and some copper tubing and stuff like that. So more affordable and generally for the person that's doing mostly extract brewing, uh, it's going to work quite well for you. So it's your choice on that. Uh, but more affordable and simpler to use, I guess, is why I like the simple immersion chillers. Uh, propane cooker, I put as nice to have, but it's really nice to have. When you start making beer, most men start smelling that wort boiling and that hops, and we're like, ah, smells good. Uh, most wives, not so much. Not all wives, so much. Like, I love that. No, a lot of them don't. So if you can do it outside, you can also have with gas, you have a lot more control on your temperatures. You get one of those great big ones like you use for frying fish. You get to a boiling temperature a lot faster. You can hold the boil a lot faster. It's just you don't have all that heat in the house. Uh, you got a more efficient device. There's just so many things that are better with a good propane outside propane cooker uh, for making your beer. Uh, another nice little nice to have is called a jet washer. This is a thing that screws on your uh, your sink. And has, you turn your sink on, it's got a little lever, you push a bottle over, it sprays the inside of the bottle out, uh, and as soon as you lift it up, it shuts off. If you're using a no-rinse sanitizer, it's not really as important, uh, but you know, one of the things that I generally do is I rinse out my bottles, and uh, if you maybe are getting ready to make beer the next day, you might go ahead and rinse all your bottles out if they've been sitting for a while, uh, and then do your sanitizing right before you, uh, you, uh, you, you brew. But if you're using a no-rinse sanitizer, it's not really necessary. Um, what you might want is uh, what's called a bottle rinser. Bottle rinser will sit up on top of something called a bottle tree, and you put your sanitizing agent in there. 
And then when you take your bottle, you just put it over it and push down, and it'll spray the inside of the bottle with your sanitizer. And then you sit it in this thing called a bottle tree for it to drain out. And if you're using a no-rinse sanitizer, it's a great way to do things. You can get bottle trees that hold 48 bottles, 50 bottles, 90 bottles, what have you. So a bottle tree also goes on kind of my list of things that you don't have to have, uh, but they're nice to have. A bottle tree uh, will solve so much of your problems for you. They're inexpensive. Uh, they make them out of plastic, which is a great thing to make a bottle tree out of. It doesn't need to be stainless steel or something like that. It's ridiculous overkill for what the product is, especially on bottling day. Bottling day is the most complicated day of making beer. Making the beer is pretty easy. You move five gallons around or more at a shot, you're done. If you go into kegging, you, you get rid of the bottling. But my problem with kegging is I if you're doing basic like everyday drinking beers, kegging's great. I like to make some really specialty beers that I like to maybe have one of here and one of there. Well, once I tap that keg, it's kind of got to stay in a place and, and be prepared and keep being used. And it's harder for me to give away a couple bottles when it's in a keg, what have you. So uh, I'm not big on kegging. I probably will be long-term for the everyday drinking stuff. But um, with bottling, you've got 60 bottles that all have to be sanitized, all have to be ready to go. And you have to fill each one, cap each one. Having a nice organized bottle tree is a great way uh, to take care of that issue and make things work a lot better for you. And that's pretty much a very comprehensive list of equipment. Again, you don't got to have it all, but the more of it you hand have and the more that you understand, the better your results are going to be and the more organized you're going to be and the more you're going to actually enjoy the hobby versus see it as you know, kind of a pain in the ass to do. Uh, especially things like the bottle tree, the wort chillers, stuff like that, vastly speeds up your process. I want to talk a little bit about what malt extract is, and then I want to go through the basic, here's how you make a batch of beer. And then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk about some individual styles of beer, some individual recipes, some tips and tricks and things like that, complete this series for you, at least this maybe call it part of a mini-series we'll complete tomorrow. Malt extract means instead of me going out and getting grain and having to go through this conversion process, this mashing process, which is you know what we're talking about. It's what they call is mashing. And again, it's simply a conversion process where we take uh, barley generally. As the, you, know, you can do this with wheat. You can do it with other grains. But we're converting starch to sugar, and we're doing that with temperature controls and a few other nuances. With malt extract, it's basically been done for us. And then the result... The, the malt sugar has been extracted. And then we take that malt sugar and we use it to make beer. And we don't have to do that whole process. We just go straight into boiling and, and, and hopping and everything else. So it's easier, it's faster. You know, we're talking uh, well-organized, two hours or less to go through complete. It's in the, the fermenter and sitting there for a few weeks before we have to do anything else with it. Everything's cleaned up and put away if we get really organized. All right? Where with a mash, we're going to spend add an hour to two hours minimum to that entire process. Unless, like there's guys that are really good at it and have everything super organized like Johnny Max. He's still going to take longer uh, to do that. Johnny Max, of course, of the Self-Sufficient Homestead, also has a podcast called Brew Crazy. You can learn tons more about home brewing there. Um, you know, He tells me he, he can do uh, a full mash almost as easy as a, as a, a mash extract or a malt extract. Uh, but that's people that are specialized and dedicated, and, and that's what they're going to do. All right. When we go into this malt extract, though, there's a couple different things that we're looking at. One, what is it made from? Most of it's barley, uh, but we can get, like, if we want to make a wheat beer, we can get a wheat extract. So that's, that's another option. Then we have different colors. We have light, 
Uh, we have dark, we have amber, and these help us make different styles. I won't go too deep into that today. Just understand that when you see an amber extract, it's basically, it's been, the, the malt was somewhat caramelized and it was roasted to a point where it got a caramel color to it because the sugars came out and coated the outside. And then when that was mashed or especially grain was added to create that, we got an amber color to our beer. So it's got a little bit more residual sweetness and nuttiness and complexity than that light blonde beer. If we go to something like a dark, You know, we, we had some, uh, what they would maybe call chocolate malt, and it's been roasted to a deeper color, and we get more of a porter or a stout or a Schwarzbier, which is a German lager, uh, a black beer. And we have all these variations in between, and we can do things with that. If I want to darken a beer a little bit, but I want more of a, 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 a soft darkness character to it, Uh, instead of using an amber, I could take light extract and I could add a little bit of a dark extract and bring that up and get more of that chocolatey, less nutty, less caramely character than a typical amber does. And there's anything you can think of has been done. So that's just a little bit on extracts. On extracts, there's two ways you generally get it. It's either a liquid form or it's powder. If you're going to stockpile it and you're going to order by mail because you don't have a good homebrew shop around you, which apparently here in Hot Springs I do not, I really recommend that you go mostly with your powdered. It stores better. It, 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 uh, it'll, it'll last longer for you. It's easier to work with. With the, the liquid stuff, um, a lot of good homebrew shops have these great big barrels of it that are nitrogen packed and all. And you go in with a bucket and you just dump in whatever you want. You don't have to worry about that stuff getting contaminated. You know, I mean, that doesn't mean you throw butterflies in there or anything, but you don't have to worry about it being exposed to the air or what have you because you're going to boil it, right? The same with the powder. So each works. If you're going to use a, a liquid-based extract before you start brewing, fill your sink with hot water, one side of your sink or a bucket with hot water. Put your sealed container in there. Start warming it up. It'll come out better, easier for you. And uh, when you're dumping it into your kettle, as you get almost all of it out there, you can take a ladle of some sort and ladle some hot water back into your container to help get the rest of it out. You'll never get it all out. It's it's a fact of life. You'll have to end up washing it and cleaning it out to get every bit of it. It's sticky, um, but it makes great beer. But your powdered extracts are better for storage Uh, for the person that has to order a large supply and keep some on hand so they can brew whenever they want because they can't run down to their local brew shop. Um, just a little side note there. So let's go through the basics of, of a basic mash extract brewing process with some specialty grains tossed in. First thing, clean, clean, clean. Everything has to be clean. Your, your, your fermenter, the, anything that's going to ever touch the beer, the wort, must be clean. And again, I've given you, given you different sanitizers, uh, but Star Sand is my favorite sanitizer. Cleaned, and, and, and if it's if no rinse, it's supposed to be dripped and allowed to drip out. Okay, uh, So everything clean. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get our kettle, and we're going to fill it up with as much water as we're going to use for our batch. Again, we may be doing an extract brew where we only have a, a two-and-a-half-gallon uh, pot. We may fill it with two gallons of water and have three gallons of water waiting, chilled down in our secondary fermenter, and that'll work. And actually, if you don't have a wort chiller, it's a better way to do it anyway, because when I add... I let that cool, and then I add it into my clean water, my clean, cool water in my fermenter. It's going to further drop the temperature. And when I didn't have a wort chiller, that's what I did, even if I had more room. I would only do about two to two and a half gallons of the, the elixir, and it's much thicker uh, than it will be when it's you know added to the water and watered down when you're cooking it, but it doesn't hurt a damn thing. 
And it's a great way to sidestep the need for a wort chiller. But anyway, I've got my water. I've got it. I'm going to throw it up on my stove and turn the heat on or my cooker, turn the heat on. At this point, if I'm using specialty grains like Grambrinus malt or chocolate malt or caramel malt, what I want is I want this grain that I've purchased has been cracked, so I either need a grinder that will crack it for me or I need to buy it pre-cracked. I'll put it into the little bag that we talked about. I'll stick that in there, and I'll start heating it up like a big tea bag. When that water is almost ready to boil, I'm going to pull that out. I don't want to boil that stuff. Right? It won't even go into the chemical reasons why. Just trust me, you don't want to boil it. When I pull that out, I've got this spent grain, and a lot of the character of that grain has been extracted, but it's still grain and it's still good. I can compost it. I can feed it to, uh, to, to livestock. I can use it to make bread. Uh, if you take a teaspoon and eat a little bit of it, you might be surprised at how good it really is. Uh, one way to use it to make bread is a basic bread recipe and mix in about a half a cup of it. There's a lot of things you can do with it. Start fooling around online. You'll find that it doesn't need to be thrown away, even though most brewers throw it away. Good bread made with some of that mixed into it with a nice home brew, a little bit of butter on top of it, not a bad way to spend an evening on the deck. Uh, but at the very least, compost it or feed it to livestock. Do not just discard it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so now I've started heating up on my water. I've got it almost to, to, to a boil. It's steaming hot. I know it's about to go into a boil. I've removed those. I've used my wooden spoon and pushed on the side of the kettle and got as much as like a giant tea bag. And I've taken those specialty grains out. The next thing I'm going to do now is I'm going to turn the heat all the way down to barely anything at all if I'm on gas. If I'm on electric, I'm going to turn it off, and I'm probably going to, on an electric stove, I'm going to pick the kettle up, and I'm going to move it to another burner while I do this process at first. I'm going to start adding my extract in. I'm going to stir like crazy while I'm doing this. I do not want that extract to pile up on the bottom. I want it fully dissolved and incorporated. If I don't do that, it'll burn to the bottom. It'll ruin the batch of beer. Probably, other than cleaning, one of the most important things you can do. Once I have it fully incorporated, I'm going to turn the heat back up. I'm going to start bringing it back to a boil. At that point, I'm going to add my bittering hops. Hops, again, they do things, different things, depending on how they're used. There's four ways we can use hops. Bitter, flavor, uh, aroma, and dry hopping, which will give us both flavor and aroma. Bittering, though, is that balance. This is the hops. We've got to have them, unless we're doing some kind of weird, special type of beer. Almost all beer is going to have some hops in there. So we're going to, according to our recipe, add a certain amount of hops. Again, I like to do those in one of those nylon bags or a mucilin bag so that I don't have to worry about getting them out. It'll be really easy to just pluck that thing out at the end. Again, you can compost the hops. I wouldn't eat them or do anything else with them. They don't taste very good, but instead of discarding them, you can compost those, and uh, they'll be, you know, good for you. To get the alpha acids out of the hops fully and fully incorporated, I need to do about a one-hour boil. Now, that's from the time that it starts boiling and those hops go in. I want to keep the boil is just barely a boil. I don't want blah, 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 super heavy boil. When you first bring it to a boil, you're going to get a lot of foam and stuff. Let that foam kind of go back down, get to a steady boil, then pitch your hops in. Now, start your timer for one hour. Then... Along the way, while this boiling process is going, you continue to stir. This is not walk away and let it cook, guys. This is You're spending an hour doing this when you're doing this. Keep stirring. Make sure there's no settling. Um, and about You can do flavor hops for the last 30 minutes to, uh, any, or to around the last 15 minutes. If you do it for too short a period of time, you won't get as much flavor out. If you do it for too, too long, you'll start to extract some flavor. So this is where you want some definite flavor character from the hops in uh, your, uh, your, your wort. 
I like to use 15 minutes for my flavoring hops. Even if the recipe says 20 or 25, I just find that I personally like that. It's trial and error, but you're going to want to give at least 10 to 15 minutes of boiling time with your flavor hops or you're not going to get enough out of them. Right at the end, when you're done with your boil and you've taken it off the boil, you can pitch in where you're still at boiling temperature but immediately come off is another addition of hops. And again, this is all about your recipe. Don't, you don't do this with every beer. Some beer this would be out of character for. Some beer that's a light beer it would be way too much hop character. The balance would be off. But if you want a, just an aroma of the hops, very little flavor, but when you, when you get that nose of the hops in the beer, you pitch some, some hops right at the end. And then there's dry hopping, which is kind of a specialty thing where the hops go directly into the fermenter. We'll leave that off today. So now we're done. With it, it's off. So now we want to chill our wort. And again, we're going to do that based on what we have available. We have a wort chiller, a submersion chiller. In it goes. We start running water through it. Maybe we take a five-gallon bucket and set it on the floor and run a hose down to there. And we take that five gallons of water, use it for our garden. If we just want to be wasteful, we let it go down the drain. But one way or another, we start chilling our wort. We're maybe doing a half batch that we're going to add to water that's in the fermenter. We give it a nice water bath. We let time do its job. But we want to chill that wort to a point where we can safely transfer it into the fermenter. Um, once it's in the fermenter, we want to let that temperature uh, continue to drop unless we have a very efficient work cooler that's already got it there for us. But you want your work temperature around 80 degrees when you're pitching an ale yeast and a little lower when you're pitching a lager yeast. And we'll talk about ales and lagers um, maybe down the road a little bit. But just know that lagers basically ferment at a lower temperature and that the yeast in uh, a lager ferments on the bottom and the yeast from an ale tends to ferment on the top. Okay, There's there's the big difference. All of this, uh, you see nonsense to some guy on TV, this isn't really beer, it's lager, or this isn't really beer, it's ale. It's all beer, and the only difference is the, the, the species of yeast, and different species of yeast that ferment in different ways at different temperatures have different characters. But you want to get down to about an 80-degree temperature before you pitch your yeast. If you pitch your yeast at 90 degrees, it'll probably be fine. If you pitch your, your yeast at even 100 degrees, it'll probably be fine, but I sure as hell wouldn't do it. If you pitch your yeast and when your wort's like 150 degrees, if, you, if yeast could scream and we could hear them, you would hear, ah, and that would be all the little yeast being killed. So you want to bring that temperature down inside the fermenter to about the 80 degree range. 85, I wouldn't sweat it. There's a lot of, you know, you don't really want to be putting thermometers in there, so they make these little, like, stick-on thermometers that go on the outside. But here's what I'm going to basically tell you. When you put your hand on the side of a glass fermenter, and it feels warm but not hot, it feels a little cooler than, than maybe if you somebody stand next to you, you put your hand on their arm, it's good to go. It'll work. You can pitch your yeast. Yeast should be um, kind of started, hydrated, so to speak, if it was a dry yeast. There's some yeasts that come in foil packages that have a nutrient with them that you kind of break open like a giant bag chem light. And you wait for that to puff up, and there's a certain amount of time. I won't go deep into yeast today. I'm just going to say that if you follow the instructions in the books that I've recommended, it won't be a problem. But now's the time that we add our yeast. So we add our yeast, and we have our airlock affixed. And all of a sudden, this great big foamy head forms, uh, you know, several hours to a day into it. And it goes like crazy. That airlock's like bloop, 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 bloop. And then over a couple days, it starts to slow down. And once in a while, we get a bubble, bubble, bubble. And we'll want to probably ferment. And, and again, recipes, how much alcohol content, uh, all different types of things. The temperature, determine how long this is going to take. But generally, about seven days into it, we're going to want to rack. 
Okay, so we rack to our secondary. So we take another fermenter, another, everything's all got to be sanitized again, transfer hose, racking cane, and we take the, 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 the now beer, we can really call it. It's still technically work, but it's really a beer. And we ferment it, we, we transfer it over to the secondary fermenter. We affix an airlock, and we let it continue for another, let's say, seven days. So we got 14 days into this now. When we're ready to bottle, All we're going to do is we're going to get ourselves a little pot of water and generally going to use about a half a cup of sugar. And you can use honey. You can use malt extract. You can use all types of things. But generally people just use a simple half cup of corn sugar, which you can get from a home brewing outlet, or even table sugar will work. But it kind of can have a cidery type effect. So you're better off with corn sugar for this. I really love to, to, to prime with honey. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to prime with. Even if it's not a honey ale, it seems to always work out really well. I'm sorry, I think I said a half a cup of sugar. For a five-gallon batch, you generally want to use about three-quarter cups of corn sugar uh, to prime with. And if you want to use honey, uh, since it's got a lot of nutrient in it, or not a lot of nutrient in it, because it just simply will carbonate a little bit more aggressively than corn sugar, um, you want to uh, cut that down to about a half a cup of honey or three-quarters of a cup of corn sugar. You put that in, in a pot with a little bit of water, enough to dissolve it thoroughly, and you boil it. Okay, You boil it. It doesn't have to boil for any length of time, but it has to come to a boil. That way you know that anything that's in there that would contaminate your now nicely clean and ready-to-go beer, um, it, won't, it won't survive. You can let it cool just a little bit. You're adding it to five gallons, and you're talking about maybe a you know, total measurement of a cup of liquid, so you can just dump it right in there. And give it a little bit of a shake. That'll give it some aeration. Uh, this is, you know, and uh, and get that that fully mixed in there. Then you take your bottling wand and you, you you bottle. If you're going to a bottling bucket, right? What I like to do then is I like to take my my hot sugar priming liquid. I put that in the bottom of the bucket before I start my transfer, and then I transfer to my bottling bucket. That way, I get a really good mix and some good aeration going on as well. Um, at that point, I bottle, and my little wand gives me the right measurement. I take my caps, I cap. I like to label my beer on the cap. I don't mess around with, with you know labels or anything. I'm going to drink the beer. I'm going to open the bottle. So what I do is I put a certain code on there, and then that'll be in my my journal uh, with my recipes, and I'll know, and I'll know based on you know what little letter and number combinations on that lid, uh, what variety of beer it is, and when it was bottled. And I'll let those bottles sit, and uh, some people say 14 days, but a lot of stuff that you'll make, you know, you'll be able to let those bottles sit for about seven days, and it'll be just fine. Sometimes it'll condition a little bit better if you leave it a little bit longer. But basically, when you look at your bottle, uh, let's say eight to ten hours later, it should be cloudy as hell. You haven't ruined it. What's happened is that extra sugar you gave it, all of the little yeasts that are still alive in there, just started yum, 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 eating it again, man. They're awake because you gave them food. And they're producing CO2 and alcohol. Very little alcohol, very little CO2, but it's contained in that 12-ounce bottle or 22-ounce bottle, whatever bottle you're using. And that little bit of headspace up there leaves some room for some air. And then we get pressure. And that's where the bubbles from come from. And that's how we get the beer from beer cider to actual beer with foam and a head and some carbonation. If you're kegging, you can negate all of this and simply charge the keg once it's kegged with an appropriate amount of CO2. So you can condition a keg, 
using priming sugar, or you can you can do the carbonation by charging with CO2. But either way, that's it. That's really all there is to it, and it's far less complicated than you might think. The rewards are great. If you're a beer drinker, um, this just opens up everything to you. There's so many things you can do with fruits and, and different adjuncts and things like that, so many things that you can't find in a shop, or even when you can, it's very expensive. Chimay. Uh, I'll give you a recipe tomorrow to make a really great Belgian-style Abbey Ale uh, that will rival Chimay. I won't say it'll be as good, but it'll be good. And if you like Chimay, you'll be happy to drink it. Um, you can make that for a little bit more than your common everyday beers. Well, a bottle of Chimay is about nine to eleven bucks now. So. Uh, you know, Chimay is something that if I'm going to buy it, it's something I buy maybe two or three times a year for a special occasion. I've got a friend coming over that I know likes to have that and will share a bottle. And it's a big bottle. So, I mean, you're getting two good-sized glasses out of it. You know, three to four even, you know, moderate portions of uh, a beer out of it to share with, with a foursome or something like that. But it's a very special thing. Uh, it can be not maybe an everyday drinker, but it can be, you know, you can have one every weekend if you want to, if you're making it yourself. Uh, beer is a barter tool is as ancient as any currency that there is. Uh, the very first written thing that we can find, the earliest form of human writing that we found is a recipe from Mesopotamia for a beer based on spelt. And that's the oldest translated form of writing in human history is this little tablet that was found in Mesopotamia that is a beer. There's been wars fought over beer. Beer is a commodity that will never become worthless. So if you can create it, and here's the thing. A lot of the stuff I talked about today, you got to have equipment. You buy the equipment once. A lot of the other stuff can be improvised. And if you learn to do this, you open up the world of making meads and wines as a vintner. Uh, and they're actually easier to do. Mead and wine are easier to do uh, than beer. So you open up those three skill sets as well. So hopefully this kind of got you primed up. You have a better understanding of the process now. If you're an old-time brewer, maybe this show was a little bit uh, lackadaisical for you. Like, I already knew all this stuff. Because if you brew, you probably know. So this was really for the new brewer or the, the, the uh, person that wants to become a brewer today. Tomorrow I'm going to go into special techniques, certain recipes, things that I've learned. And now we can take all of this stuff and start creating some really unique Uh, beers and uh, some really unique, uh, let's call them ale mead hybrids as well, and some other cool stuff like that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Yeah.